The Messiah foretold by the Old Testament scripture has come. And his name is Jesus. This is the message we proclaim. And sometimes we forget that this is a very Jewish message. And so we often put too sharp of a distinction between Old and New Testaments. Or we preach a message that focuses more sometimes on what Jesus does for us than it focuses on who God made Jesus to be. And in so doing, we fall short of proclaiming the message that God has given to his church to proclaim to the world. So in this morning, we continue our study of the book of Acts. We're in chapter 18. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 872. And I'd like to take us back to spring training for a bit this morning. We want to see the essence of the message being proclaimed by Paul that changed the world. In particular, we'll see two characteristics of this message about Jesus, the Messiah. You can see these two things in your outline, that this is a message in full harmony with the Old Testament, and we'll conclude that it is a message to be replicated. Let me pray for our time in God's Word, and then we'll dive in. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and for showing us who Jesus is and what he has done. Please fix our eyes on him. Help us to see and understand your word. Open our eyes and our ears that we might see what you have recorded here for the generations. And please strengthen us to see Jesus, the Messiah, more clearly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first characteristic about this message about Jesus the Messiah is that it is a message in full harmony with the Old Testament. I'd like to read verses 1 through 23 of Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, 
Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Cancrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, we have a number of interconnected scenes in this narrative, and this series shows us that the message about Jesus the Messiah is in full harmony with the Old Testament. So in the last chapter, chapter 17, Paul was debating with the philosophers in Athens, you know, one of the scholastic centers of the empire, and Paul now remains in southern Greece. So he's still in the same region, just the south part of Greece, but he shifts over from Athens westward to this major city of Corinth. Corinth was a Roman colony. It was the capital city of this region of Achaia, of southern Greece. And so Paul goes there in verse 1, and he's expecting the Lord Jesus to continue building his church. And this story in this chapter is told in a fascinating way, where the majority of the chapter centers around a public controversy, a criminal charge brought by the Jews in the city of Corinth against this apostle Paul, this messenger of Christ. So what I'm going to do as I preach is I want to start in this narrative center with this controversy, and we'll work out from there. Please bear with me as I do this. I know it's going to be a little convoluted. I'm not going to explain the text from beginning to end. I'm going to start in the center and work my way out. Because I think doing this will enable us to better grasp the author's main point, which is that this message that Paul preaches is in full harmony with the Old Testament. So let me start with letter A, the charge, 
which comes in verses 11 through 13. Uh, In verse 11, we're told that Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months, and he was teaching the word of God. He wasn't just making stuff up. He was teaching God's word. And But in verse 12, the local Jewish community really doesn't like this. And so they drag Paul before the mayor of the city. And in verse 13, they charge Paul with persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. That's their charge. He's persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And here's what's at stake here. They're saying that the law tells us how to worship God. Paul says something else, something different than that. And this is not okay. It's stirring up a lot of trouble. Now, from the proconsul's reply in verse 15, which we'll get to in a minute, it's clear that the charge they're bringing is that Paul is teaching people things that are contrary to Jewish law. In other words, they're saying what he's teaching is contrary to the Old Testament. He's violating our law. Now, you might ask, why then are they bringing that matter before the Roman governor, Gallio, the proconsul? And this is because we need to understand what's happening historically. At this time, in the first century, during the Roman Empire, of all peoples conquered by Rome, the Jews alone were given a special exemption for worship. You see, all subjects everywhere across the empire, they were allowed to worship any gods they wanted to worship, as long as they also worshipped Caesar. Okay, just add Caesar to your worship and then you can do whatever you want. But every time Rome tried to enforce those regulations on the worship of the Jewish people, they had an unstoppable revolution on their hands. It never worked. And eventually Rome stopped trying to enforce it and they gave the Jewish people a unique exemption. The Jews alone of all Roman subjects, did not have to perform worship for the emperor. Understanding that helps us to see here what the Corinthian Jews are alleging in verse 13 is that Paul's movement is not truly Jewish. And therefore... Paul and his Christian movement should not be granted the same exemptions from Roman law that was granted to the Jews. And Rome should do something to snuff out this exclusivist cult. That's what their charge is. And that's exactly how Gallio himself hears their charge. The question raised by the charge is whether the Christian message is consistent with or contrary to the Old Testament. So that's the charge. This is contrary to the Old Testament. Let's move out from that, the center of the passage to show how the narrative presents on either side of it, letter B, two vindications that declare harmony with the Old Testament. So in answer to this charge that Paul is teaching people to worship God contrary to the Jewish law, the narrative presents two vindications. 
I'll talk about the second one first, the one that comes right after the charge, because I've already brought it up. This is from Gallio, the proconsul. In verse 14, he doesn't even need to hear a response to Paul. We're told that Paul opened his mouth, but he didn't even get a word out before Gallio speaks up. He determines that the charge has nothing to do with criminal or lawless activity. If it did, he would accept the complaint, verse 14. In verse 15, he says, it's just a matter of questions about words and names and your own law. You see, Gallio refuses to settle this dispute for them. He throws it out of court and he hands it back to the Jews as an internal Jewish matter. Now, this judgment from the proconsul of the region of Achaia is nothing short of a shocking vindication, not only of Paul, but also of Paul's movement, global Christianity. Gallio identifies the Christian teachings as an internal matter among Jewish people. And thereby, Gallio grants significant freedom to current and future Christians in his region. They will fall under the same religious exemptions as all Jews in the entire empire. And this is a momentous victory for the movement, which is almost certainly why the book of Acts records it for us. This episode would be a key part of Paul's defense later when he's in Rome on trial before Emperor Nero. And Gallio's judgment in Corinth would set a major precedent for how Paul's later case also ought to be decided. But Gallio's vindication of Paul is only one vindication in this text, and it's not the most weighty one either. The other vindication comes right before the charges. When the Lord Jesus appears to Paul at night in a vision, verses 9 and 10, Jesus shows, well, it says, the text says, verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, And he offers three commands with three promises. Verse 9, he gives him three commands. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. In verse 10, he gives him three promises. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. I have many of my people in this city. Now, The narrative here doesn't explicitly say that the one speaking to Paul is Jesus. It just calls him the Lord in verse 9. But we should understand by now of reading and studying this book that in the book of Acts, more often than not, the title Lord refers to Jesus. All the way back in chapter 1, he's called that. Acts 2.36 is a big one where Peter said, God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. And in fact, they refer to Jesus as Lord just up in verse 8 when Crispus believed in the Lord. So it's that same Lord. And uh, if you have one of those red letter Bibles that puts the words of Jesus in red, they probably have verses uh, 9 and 10 here in red. Most of those red letter Bibles do that to show you that this is Jesus talking. And so you should know that, that this, this term, this title, the Lord is what the Jews called God himself when they chose not to speak his actual name in the synagogue. You see, God God revealed his personal name 
to his people in the Old Testament. It occurs more than 6,800 times in the Old Testament. And every time it comes up in Jewish synagogue, in a public reading of scripture, Jews will not speak out loud the name itself. Instead, they replace it with the word Adonai, which is translated as Lord. The author of Acts knows this. It's no coincidence that most of the time when he refers to Jesus, he refers to him as the Lord. Here in this vision, Jesus is speaking as the Lord. What he's saying is that this is the judgment, not of any mere human ruler, but this is the judgment of the same God spoken of in the Old Testament. Now revealed to be Jesus. And he claims to have many people in this city. And he wants Paul to go on doing what he's been doing. You see, he doesn't say, what you're teaching these people is contrary to my law. He says, do not be silent. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. If it weren't for this vision from Jesus in verses 9 and 10, I guess, I presume Paul would probably have snuck away from this city, from the opposition in it, maybe even by night, because that's what he did in every other city before this when the Jews rose up in opposition to him. But Jesus vindicates him in advance, and then verse 11, in obedience to that vision, he, he stays in this city longer than he's been anywhere else. He stays there 18 months, and he's teaching the word of God. So his message has been vindicated by God himself. So we have two vindications for Paul from the charge. We have the judgment of Rome, and we have the judgment of heaven. That Paul is not teaching anything that is contrary to the law. This message is in full harmony with the Old Testament. Paul's doing exactly what God wants him to do, regardless of what the local Jews suspect. Though we do need to see that not all of the Jews are against him. In addition to the two vindications, there's this next pair. There are, letter C, two Old Testament authorities that agree. Moving outward from those two vindications, the passage describes two rulers of the synagogue. In verse 8, we're told that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthian citizens are influenced to join Christ publicly through baptism. Now, this guy was a ruler of the synagogue. And in that role, he was certainly familiar with the Jewish religion and with the Old Testament. He realizes from Paul's teaching that Jesus is actually the one they've been waiting for. And so he believes. So that's one Old Testament authority, this guy Crispus. And then down in verses 16 and 17, we're told about another ruler of the synagogue. When Gallio drives the Jews out of his courtroom, they begin to beat this guy named Sosthenes, who's the new ruler of the synagogue. He probably took over the role after Crispus defected to Paul's Christianity. Perhaps they blamed Sosthenes here for the failure to convict Paul before the governor. And as the new synagogue ruler, he probably bears responsibility for what's happening in their sight. So they start beating him and Gallio just pays no attention to it. But this must have had an impact on Sosthenes because when Paul wrote his first letter to this young church in Corinth, there's a book 
after this called 1 Corinthians. It was co-authored by a man named Sosthenes. You can look at 1 Corinthians 1.1. Now, it's, it's altogether possible that it's the same guy. It's this guy right here. The name Sosthenes appears nowhere else in the Bible besides Acts 18.17 and 1 Corinthians 1.1. The point, I think, is that Paul had quite an effect on not one, but two rulers of the Jewish synagogue. Those who have the clearest grasp of the Old Testament scriptures. Those who have the clearest hope in God's promises for Israel through his Messiah. Those two are those who respond in dramatic ways to Paul's teaching. So those are the two authorities who agree that this message is in full harmony with the Old Testament. Working outward from there, there are many more parallels I could comment on in this text. I'm going to limit myself to just one more which is letter D, there are two vows that put the Old Testament into practice. When Paul began his ministry in Corinth, up in verse 4, he followed his standard practice of going to the local synagogue and speaking to the Jewish people there. And his message was clear and simple. You see it summarized in verse 5. He was testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. That was his message. You know that, that person we're waiting for, the Christ? Well, I found him. His name is Jesus. Christ, you should know, is a Greek word. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means God's chosen one. The Messiah was the one foretold by the prophets. We often forget this when we get used to repeating the name Jesus Christ. We think of it as just a name. But whenever we call him Christ... What we are saying is deeply Jewish. So much was wrapped up for them in this title of Messiah. The least of which is that he is now the king of the world. This is what the Jewish scriptures foretold. And so in verse 6, when the Jews themselves oppose and revile Paul for preaching this message, that that Messiah they're waiting for, his name is Jesus... Paul takes a vow in verse 6. A vow that they are responsible for their own blood and he will now turn aside from them to speak to Gentiles, that is to non-Jewish peoples. And this is very similar, very similar to how God himself acts in the Old Testament. Paul is simply putting the Old Testament into practice because God, time and again, in his prophets, he vows to turn from his people and give his attention to other nations, even sending his own people into exile when they persist in rebellion against him. So that's this first vow that Paul takes that's very godlike. It's very much like the Old Testament. Looking at the parallel, down in verse 18, when Paul set sail with his new friends Priscilla and Aquila, we're told that he cuts his hair because he was under a vow. Now, sadly, I don't have time this morning to go into Numbers chapter 6, a passage from the Old Testament. You can read it later or we can talk about it after church. A passage that describes this kind of vow that, that Jews would take where you'd eventually have to you grow your hair out and then you have to cut it. But the point, I think the point the narrative is making is this. 
It's that Paul is following the law of Moses in this matter. The narrator includes this funny detail about the vow and the hair to fit, I think, to highlight the theme of the passage, that this message of Paul's remains consistent with the Old Testament. His teaching is not a new religion. It does not set aside the Old Testament completely. Instead, it is the fullest and the best expression of true Judaism. The Christianity, the Jesus that Paul preaches, fulfills the promises and accomplishes the hopes of Israel. And Jesus, the Messiah, is everything they needed him to be in order to bring heaven to earth and establish God's kingdom. Now that was a lot of explanation of this passage. What does this mean for all of us? Let me talk about some application here. Letter E, some application for us. First, if you do not yet follow Jesus Christ, and you are here to consider who he is, please do not trust the general public to deliver to you the truth about Jesus. In this major city of Corinth, public sentiment led to a riot, to a beating before the the judge's bench, not because Paul was doing anything wrong or contrary to Jewish law, but because people are in love with their old ways of doing things and they don't like it when someone like Paul comes along and claims that Jesus is the king of the world and that we all need to bow before him and give him our entire lives. Every few years, the New York Times publishes some puff piece about the secret history of Jesus, or the History Channel runs a mini-series about how a few powerful men hundreds of years later rewrote the stories about Jesus to fit what they wanted the stories to say. But none of this will do. It never stands up to scholarly scrutiny. If Jesus is the Messiah, as Paul and many others claimed he was very soon after he died and rose from the dead. If he really is the one Israel was waiting for, if he was the one God chose to rule the world, then all we can do is fall at his feet and proclaim him Lord. Please trust him and give him your allegiance even today. For those of you who already love Jesus and wish to serve him, I have two applications for you. Number one, don't pit the Old and New Testaments against each other. Don't pit the Old and New Testaments against each other. Both sections of the Bible, all 66 books, tell a unified story. It's a story about the God who created the world and made it all very good. It's a story about humanity who willfully turned away from their creator. It's a story about the promise of a redeemer to make everything right and lead us back into a city of paradise. It's a story about the nation that God chose out of all the other nations to represent his glory like a light to the world, but a nation who failed to be all they were supposed to be. It's a story about a chosen king and an eternal kingdom 
It's a story about a promise of heaven and earth reunited once and for all. It's a story about the coming of that Messiah, that chosen king, to be and to do for God's people what they could not be or do for themselves. It's a story about his sin-bearing death and his bodily resurrection three days later, showing us that the new heavenly world had broken into the present. And it's now available to all people everywhere who turn away from their sin to trust that reigning king, Jesus. The whole Bible tells one story, and we hear this story in all parts of the Bible. The story of Christianity is the only appropriate conclusion to the story of Israel. Our movement from the beginning has been a Jewish movement, but it is a movement not limited to Jews. It's a Jewish movement now taking over the entire world. That's why when we finish our series in Acts, Lord willing, we'll probably go, go back to the Old Testament. We'll teach through an Old Testament book next. But it will be no less about Jesus and his kingdom than the book of Acts is. And so please delight in all of God's revelation together with us. Yeah, And yes, I want to make clear, there are some differences between the Testaments. There are distinctions to be made. They don't merely repeat the same things over and over. No, Old and New Testaments are more like shadow and reality or twilight turned into the sunrise. They're, they're like there are some seeds and buds in the Old Testament that turn into fully blooming flowers in the New Testament. But that doesn't mean they're opposed to one another. Without the New Testament, we'd never get the conclusion, the true conclusion to the story. And without the Old Testament, we would distort and misunderstand what that conclusion actually means. So please, don't pit Old and New Testaments against each other. Second application. Second application. In your efforts to spread the message about God's kingdom, don't forget the most basic piece of information. Okay, as you spread this message, please don't forget the most basic piece of information, which is... The Messiah is Jesus. From verse 5. The Messiah is Jesus. In other words, what, what I'm getting at is when you speak to people, the main thing you ought to tell them is that Jesus is the one chosen by God to make everything right and rule the world. This is essentially what Paul says in verse 5 when he testifies that the Messiah is Jesus. Jesus is the one chosen by God to make everything right and rule the world. Sometimes we think of the good news from God as being centered on ourselves and our need, and that's a real part of the message, but the essence of the message is not necessarily who we are, but who Jesus is. That's why who we are can have a happy ending, because of who he is. This has been so encouraging to me. I often need to remember this. Because I, I tend to think that I have failed to share the gospel if I don't give someone a perfect bridge illustration or a, a six-point presentation all mapped out. But if I am giving glory to the Lord Jesus and directing people to Him to fix what is broken, which of course includes our sin, 
then that is the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of the good news. Just this last week, I met a man while waiting for uh, Charlotte to finish with her baseball practice one day. And I, I met a dad from another team practicing on a field nearby. And we struck up a conversation. And as we talked about all that the world has been learning through its suffering during the pandemic... I was able to share the gospel by simply pointing him to the glory of Jesus Christ. He brought up himself the fact that the suffering in all the world from the pandemic may end up actually making many people and societies better for having gone through the suffering. That was his point, and he was seeing some hope there. And man, he just sort of, you know, talking about baseball practice, he just put that ball right on the tee for me. All I had to do was swing. I said, you know what, friend? That's kind of like experiencing death and a sort of resurrection, which is the pattern that was set for us by the Son of God who gave his life for us. He is the Messiah. And because of that, we can now die with him and be raised to new life with him. See, being better for the suffering, that's just death and resurrection. That's the good news. You can turn any conversation into a conversation about Jesus. This is the Jesus we proclaim to the nations all around us. This was not simply Paul's message. It is also our message. And that's how our passage concludes. In conclusion here, point number two, this is a message to be replicated. Look at the end of the chapter, starting at verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived... He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Acts 18 ends with a snapshot of how this message goes forth, even in Paul's absence. Because if you remember, Paul had had already left. So they, they went from Greece over to Turkey, that's where Ephesus is, and Paul had already left there to go back to, uh, to, to the Middle East, back to Palestine in, in 21 and 22. So here we are, we're back in Ephesus in Paul's absence where Priscilla and Aquila had been left. And they meet up with another teacher, this guy named Apollos. And he's teaching well, but he doesn't have everything right. And so in verse 26, they straighten him out. They, they, they complete the story for him to make sure he has the whole story about Jesus the Messiah. In verse 27, the church in Ephesus ships him back across the sea to Greece, to Corinth, to continue the good work there in Achaia. And look at the essence of his ministry in verse 28. Apollos' message boils down to this. He's showing people from the scriptures that the Messiah is Jesus. So it's exactly the same message Paul proclaimed in verse and it's exactly the same methodology Paul has used is showing them from the Old Testament that this is who Jesus is the point here is rather straightforward it's that Apollos replicates 
Paul's ministry in full. What Paul had begun, Apollos continues, even though Paul is absent. And the narrative puts it here at the end to propose one simple application, which is that these lessons from Acts in the spreading of the kingdom and reaching out to other nations, to other peoples, these lessons are not just for the original apostles. They're not only for the original followers of Jesus. They were always meant to be replicated. Priscilla and Aquila imitated Paul, and Apollos imitated them, and the Corinthians began to imitate him. And both the message and the method have been handed down through continuous replication for centuries, even to today. Will you be a part of it with us? Would you consider finding one opportunity this week to just tell somebody that Jesus is king of the world? It can be as simple as that. Do that and you will continue what Jesus himself and then Paul after him and Apollos had begun. This message is fully consistent with the Old Testament and the message is centered on the truth that a man named Jesus is both God and the Jewish Messiah now ruling the entire world. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you for your word, which speaks life to us because it introduces us to you, to your son Jesus, who is life. And please help us to proclaim Jesus as life to the world. We ask that you would please rescue us and grant us your mercy as we replicate this message. Help us to honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.